You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, don't pinch yourself. You're not dreaming. And don't bother to call the IT department to adjust your computer monitor. It's working fine. The stock market really did just put in one of the strongest first halves of a year in, well, forever, at least for the NASDAQ 100 which as of this recording is up about 37% so far in 2023. So how exactly did that happen when everyone and their dog was calling for a recession this year? And what can we expect next? We'll get into it with a very special guest. But first of all, Donna, I think many listeners are probably familiar with the famous Bloomberg pantry. We're very lucky to have snacks and coffee coffee and soft drinks. What's your favorite part of the Bloomberg Pantry? Bloomberg Pantry. Okay, we have these really cool machines that I heard are straight from Italy that make lattes. Do you use those? They're like dotted all over the place. One of them is brand new and makes like the silkiest latte. So I love those. I was going to be corny and say the people. Oh my God. Please don't make me roll my eyes. All right. I was walking through the pantry the other day, and there is something to being back in the office and not working at home all the time, because you run into people. I had my eggs, my my hard-boiled egg, my coffee, a pocket full of red licorice, and I ran into our guest this week and made me think, you know what? It's about time we had her on the show. We have a lot of strategists on the show um, from outside of the firm, but we're lucky to have one of the best in the business right yes. here. When I see her in the hallways, I never say hi because I'm like, oh, no, I'm leaving her alone because she needs her time. She's so busy. <laughs> really? Really? Yes. Oh, Is that my why gosh. you never say hello to me? Oh, I never say hello to you on purpose. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. turn the, whole, the other way. Completely different reason, I guess. Turn the other way. Yes. Okay. It's Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, and she's been on the show before, and we're so lucky to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Wow. Thank you for having me. That was quite an introduction. Well, we should your... just stop it right there on yes, that high note it. and call it a quit. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for, for listening it's all this week. <laughs> but it's a good week, uh, Gina, to have you on. You you guys just came out with your mid-year outlook for equities. Talk to us about sort of your main takeaways about this crazy strong rally we've seen this year and, and what we should uh, take away most from the mid-year outlook. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to unpack with the market so far this year. I think the biggest takeaway for me really is we cannot drop the ball on following earnings trends. 
And earnings did give us a lot of indication that 2022 was going to be weak. They also have given us a lot of support in 2023. And I think that many people just miss the gains in the equity market. It has been a powerful rally. But remember, it comes off of a really rough go in 2022 for that NASDAQ and for some of those tech stocks. So earnings trends, very, very important. Inflation, likewise important, not only for its impact on earnings trends, but because inflation in the 70s and 80s was a really great timing mechanism for stock tops and bottoms. Once again, inflation peaks, stocks bottom, and we're off to the races as inflation is decelerating. So that's a that's a big takeaway from us. I think thirdly, sentiment is still pretty mixed. I, sentiment gave us an indication in October of last year that we should start getting more constructive to stocks because everybody else had left the building. There was just nobody left that wanted to touch equity markets. And sentiment is still somewhat mixed. I do think that people are still really nervous about this potential economic recession and how deep or long it may be. People are still really nervous about the Fed. As long as I keep getting pushback from people that we shouldn't be constructive, then we probably should be constructive. <laughs> I really like the very first line of the mid-year of your mid-year outlook. So I want to read it. Stocks should breathe a sigh of relief as the inflation pig appears to have passed through the S&P 500 earnings python. Uh-huh. That's so good and so oh, visual. Thank you. And then you also mentioned mar- margin pressures from 2022. They're fading and should offset any revenue weakness. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then also about the idea, I want to bring AI into this as well. Like mm-hmm. if we are expecting all these companies to be spending on AI, does that hurt margins? Yeah, uh, really great question. So I'm I am very well known as being obsessed with margins. As a matter of fact, one of my associates one time accidentally wrote my name Gina Margin Adams on a piece of work <laughs> instead of Gina Martin Adams. She says it was an accident. I love but, it. <laughs> um, it, it's, it. It's just something that I follow very, very carefully. And margins had been just crashing when inflation was accelerating. Margins X Energy, which is an important clarification, on the S&P 500 crashed from late 2021 right through to the first quarter of this year, but started we're starting to see margin improvement occur on the index. And that is a direct reflection of the inflation landscape. Consumer prices are decelerating. Producer prices growth is also decelerating, but consumer price growth is decelerating at a slower pace than producer price growth. And that margin is directly impacting the S&P 500. On top of that, We did go through some pretty significant layoffs in 2022, and that's enabling margin recovery for some of the index. So what we're starting to see is actually green shoots in the earnings stream. And we started writing about this in the first quarter earnings season. People were like, you got to be crazy. The economy is going to fall apart. You can't can't have green shoots in the earnings stream when the economy is going to be falling apart. But that's what we see. And as long as that continues... That fundamental shift in margins should lead to much better earnings stability for the index going forward, in particular for X energy sectors. Now, tech is a really interesting phenomenon right now because what's happening in tech is, in some cases, very different from what's happening in the rest of the index, and in some cases, the same. And, and, and where it's very different is there is optimism in tech. There's optimism nowhere else in the S&P 500. The equal weighted S&P is still trading below its pre-pandemic average levels. But there's a ton of optimism in tech. Tech valuations are at pandemic peaks in the S&P specifically. And that's a function of both 
margins starting to improve. This really started the tech rally. Nobody wants to admit it because everybody thinks it's all about AI. But the reality is tech cut costs, tech cut those costs that created a margin bottom for tech and created an, an uptrend, an updraft in earnings estimate revision for that space going into latter the, the later part of this year. So that created the initial rounds of optimism. And then what's different is AI. And AI certainly is driving an anticipated recovery in spending at large and capital spending in particular. That impacts different segments of tech and communications in some of the consumer discretionary sectors in very different ways. So some of the companies that are big beneficiaries of that capital spending obviously can see really significant revenue growth to offset any any spend that they have to develop product. Companies that are simply going to have to spend in order to onboard have face a different scenario. They'll need to see revenue growth in other spaces. But it does appear to be creating this sort of snowball effect throughout the entire in the entirety of the tech sector where there is this optimism embedded in prices. That could be a risk. Later this year, if, if tech companies aren't starting to post the earnings growth that it's anticipated in that valuation, then we could face some downdraft in tech. But for now, it looks like it's only creating an upwave in expectations. You know, one of the most interesting things to me in the mid-year outlook is you guys have at, at BI Equity Strategy have your own economic regime model. That model actually suggests that the recession is come and gone, that it, yeah. it, it's, it's happened in what, the second half of 2022, which sort of makes this market make a lot more sense than everyone bracing for a recession. But could you walk us through sort of the inputs of that model and what exactly it's showing and, and what makes you make that analysis that it really looked like a recession last year? Yeah. So the economic regime model, we, we designed this. I designed this many, many years ago when I was with another firm that shall re- remain nameless. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, it is designed to give us a read on the current read on the economy by indicators that are historically very meaningful for predicting stock prices. So we really isolate that read on the economy into four factors. We use consumer confidence, we use ISM, we use capacity utilization, and we use continuing claims. And those four factors together have given us, we put them into a logistic regression. I don't want to get too nerdy, but nonetheless, most of the time those factors give us an output of a range of from zero to one, And most of the time, they give us an output of near one, which would suggest the economy is just fine. The input from the economy for the equity market is very positive. You should expect positive returns over time when when the output is at one. When it drops below one, it creates risk to the equity market, right? And so this indicator gave us an started suggesting there were economic risks emerging for the equity market as early as June of last year. And then it hit just an outright low level, like a a low that you never see outside of recession near zero in December of last year. So we effectively had this big loss of momentum in the economy that impacted the equity market extremely negative between June and December of last year. Since December, it's certainly not out of the woods. It's still terrible. The reading is awful. It suggests we may and we may actually still be in some form of an economic correction or recession. But it's off of the low. So this is what's really meaningful for price direction is, as we know, equity prices are driven by shifts in momentum, right? So even if the economy is still in recession, the recession reached its big momentum trough, according to this indicator as of December. Now, this is really contradictory to any economic thought out there. And, you know, every economist will tell you, no way we're in recession. The job market was very stable 
I was going to ask, what was the main driver of that? Was it yeah. poor consumer confidence mainly? Oh, it was everything. I mean, you know, remember ISM peaked all the way back in 2011 yeah. we use, or 2021. We use ISM as another indicator, as a component of our market health checklist. And it gave us a really early read that things were going south as yeah. of the end of 2021. So ISM was plummeting for much of last year, may have crested its low as well. And that certainly helps. Continuing claims were stable to higher, so they weren't particularly great. Consumer confidence was awful. We had those two back-to-back negative GDP readings as Mm -hmm. well. We did. There were definite weaknesses, and we saw that really clearly in earnings. And I think that this is the important point. I'm not trying to make a forecast for the economy. It doesn't matter to me whether we fall into a technical recession or not. I need to forecast earnings. And I need to forecast what's going to happen with stock or figure out what's going to happen or likely to happen with stock price returns. And these four indicators as a group have done a very good job of suggesting to me where I should be with respect to the equity market and how constructive you want to be. And basically what it said is go as far away from equities as you can (laughs) in June and Hmm. in December, get back in. And, And that's what the model said to us. And it may or may not eventually proved to be the case that we did or did not fall in recession in 2022. But the economic indicators that matter to me as an equity strategist suggest that the distress has reached some sort of low point. We're still somewhat distressed, but not as distressed as we were last year. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is really interesting to me because I feel like in recent days, more and more people have been bringing up the fact like we've been waiting for this recession. There still aren't crazy great signs that something is happening right now. But somebody I spoke with earlier this week said, if you're looking at the market, if you look at small caps, for instance, Uh or you mentioned the eco weight Uh S&P index, 
that actually you could almost make the argument that those stocks are pricing in a recession mm-hmm. because they're like, what do you make of that? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I think large caps priced in recession as well last year. We run a different model. We call it our fair value model. And this is a model that utilizes consensus expectations to suggest where the fair value for various equity markets are around the world, macroeconomic expectations. And that model at the lows of last year was anticipating a 15% decline in earnings coming over the next 12 months. So that would say that, okay, if the market is right here, as of October 1st, 2022, we are officially headed into a major earnings recession in 2023 a major decline in earnings of 15% more, because remember, earnings were already declining by that point in time. So that would be equivalent to roughly a 20% drop in earnings, which is very consistent with historical recession experience. We already priced it in the equity market. And unless we get a greater than 20% drop in earnings, those lows are probably pretty firm. The October lows? Yep, the the October lows are probably pretty firm. At least that would be what was implied in in that model at that time. Small caps, very similarly, small caps are much more economically sensitive or sensitive to the the movements in the U.S. economy than are large caps. So the divergence between large caps and small caps could be easily explained by the ongoing weakness in the domestic economy, the divergence between what's happening in tech and some of the bigger cap names and some of the multinationals that are more sensitive to foreign exchange in large caps versus small caps, which don't get those benefits of the dollar move. Small caps are not as beneficial, not as benefited by a re-emerging Asia out of COVID restrictions, where large caps get a little bit of boost there. So there's, I think, a lot of what's happened in the equity market. As much as people think it's very mysterious and things are not explained by fundamentals, I actually think the the equity advance is largely explained by some fundamental shifts. Well, you also discuss the notion of a Fed pause in, in your outlook um, and what historically has happened after a pause. I guess we don't really know if yeah. this is the highest that the Fed funds rate will be. Jerome Powell keeps saying maybe probably two more quarter point increases this year. I feel like the market could digest another half point on, on mm-hmm. the Fed funds rate after this. And, and you know whether this is a pause or it's a pause after another 50 basis points, I don't think is that big of a difference. But I, I do wonder, you know, if we do plateau there for a while and the bond market falls in line with that and we have an elevated risk-free rate compared to what we saw pre-pandemic, how does that influence your thinking on what the market will do and, and valuations specifically? Does that suggest to you a a sort of lower ceiling for valuations mm-hmm. or does this tech euphoria overshadow that and outweigh where the risk-free rate is going to be? Yeah, I, it's a really good question. I think the equity market will really dismiss anything that happens with the Fed in the short run. I think that we're kind of over it, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just, yeah, okay, we're pausing. You might hike one or two more times, but it's largely been the near term price action is the near term action from the Fed has been priced. I do think there's a risk, though, that the bond market is very convinced that this is not a pause. It's just a short term pause that leads to a series of cuts. Mm-hmm. And we do see that sort of infiltrating equity market psychology through valuations for long duration versus slow du- low duration stocks. So high duration equities are much more sensitive to interest rates. High duration equities are still trading and increasingly trading at a premium to low duration equities, which would substantiate that bond market forecast. So I think later this year, you do have some risk if the economy does not comply, if we don't ultimately fall into that 
growth malaise or recession, if we don't see inflation really viciously come down to more normalized levels, then the bond market has to adjust. And that will have impacts on the equity market. Those, it won't be as negative uh, as the last year's impacts because you have the offset, right? If the bond market is having to adjust to the, an outlook where the Fed funds rate doesn't have to come down and instead stays stable for longer, that only impacts valuations because that only happens in an environment where economic growth is actually still stronger than anybody had hoped. Yeah. Right. And inflation is coming down. And so that offset, that stronger economic growth than anybody had hoped with a decelerating inflation is very good for the earnings stream. And it really substantiates 2024 forecasts for earnings, which should help the equity market sustain that movement. But it will create volatility in equities and probably for longer duration equities more than short duration equities. That's what I'm worried about with respect to the Fed, that longer term. I remember it was just a couple of weeks ago, I think, when people, some people were suggesting the Fed was going to start cutting in July. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is now. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to ask you, just to go back to the AI theme, just broadly speaking, what you make of it in terms of it being such a big driver for the rally, for companies spending on mm-hmm. AI, and what the possibilities are of it driving not just spending with the big mega caps, but also with, I don't know, smaller companies that might start utilizing AI in Mm -hmm. in different ways and Mm -hmm. how that might be beneficial or even underpin the bull case. Yeah, I think it's really early to say what the potential of this is long term. And certainly we'll go through the process of trying to price that over the next six to 12 months. That said, every cycle starts with some new innovation, some new catalyst for growth. And what you do tend to find is that if you get this catalyst for growth, it emanates throughout and tends to broaden in terms of its impact on industries, companies, and sectors at large. And think about this. If we're able to accelerate the utilization of AI and tech, there's no reason why that ultimately would not also benefit the margins of even consumer staples companies long term, right? So this is right now really Im- being implemented as a driver of revenue growth, right? And, and I think that's the psychology right now is that this will help drive revenue growth long term for tech. What we haven't thought through and probably the second derivative impact of this is, OK, it'll help drive revenue growth for tech and companies will spend a little bit more on this. They'll probably shift spending. So it's not a net net margin drag in that capacity. Instead of spending on other capital investments, they'll spend on AI. Presumably, in that sense, if they're spending the same amount, they're elevating the value of revenue or they're elevating revenue growth potential for the tech space, which are the producers of AI. But then they also are implementing these technologies, which should reduce their margin pressures or reduce margins longer term, make their companies much more efficient. And that efficiency improvement is the long term big, big benefit that I think we have yet to really price because we just don't know how fast can it be implemented, how quickly can it actually improve efficiency and drive productivity gains. We all have read all the articles about how horribly unproductive the U.S. economy is. This is a potential big game changer. I don't think that is at all in the consensus forecast right now. I think most people are saying, look, you know, that we're still going to struggle with this, these labor dynamics and very low productivity rates and, and whatnot. So it's a potentially very big game changer longer term, but it's going to take us a while to work that out. For now, it is very much a driver of revenue optimism in tech. Yeah. Well, I hear efficiency gains and I interpret that as job layoffs, <laughs> which obviously feeds back into your economic models. 
How big of a risk is that, do you think? I think it's limited in the short run, mostly because we have record levels of available jobs open in the economy as it is. The way that I see the job market, I think it's a little different than the way that many people have characterized the job market. The way that I see it is in 2020, we had a mass, mass layoff experience. I mean, the worst layoff experience that any of us hopefully will ever face in our lives with the unemployment rate just shooting higher, layoffs throughout all industries except for tech and to a lesser extent financials. It is therefore no surprise that come 2022, the sectors that did not lay off in 2020 suddenly had to lay off workers. And so it was just this sort of 2022 was kind of this mini, to me, mini layoff experience, mini recession, whatever it might be, however you want to characterize it, reflecting the 2020 experience. And now we've gotten to the point of presumably close to stable labor market conditions. And I derive this expectation really through an analysis of challenger layoffs. It's not the most popular economic series, but if you look at challenger layoffs, challenger layoffs really peaked with the fourth quarter layoffs in the tech space. They started to decelerate as of the first quarter. They're continuing to decelerate. That's very consistent with what we're getting out of earnings call sentiment and the announcements of layoffs in earnings calls. Earnings layoffs announced by U.S. companies in earnings reports peaked in the fourth quarter. They decelerated to a lower level in the first quarter. And I anticipate that to continue in the second quarter. So, so far, it looks like the labor market weakness is really minimal. Ultimately, long term, do you have some layoffs affiliated with AI or is your growth so much faster that those jobs all come back even faster, Yeah. right? I don't know how much transfer of labor there is between the layoffed worker, the laid-off workers in communications and technology industries and two AI sorts of positions. Yeah. But I, it is a question, but I don't think we're going to face major labor constraints as a result or major labor weaknesses as a result of AI for quite some time. And it seems like it'll be, you know, while the revenue lines are moving higher for the chip makers and the cloud companies, for companies actually trying to utilize AI to boost their own efficiencies, it, it feels like we're just only in the R&D phase for all of that. It's not, it's yeah. not immediately going to be a, a, a needle mover for anything um, from yep. that side of it. It does seem very, very early in the game. The equity market moves so far in advance and so fat, much faster yeah. than the economy that we'll feel the economic impacts for five years and the equity market will price it in in six months. So. <laughs> I think we do need to respect that dynamic. But nonetheless, I, I do think it's still very, very early. And the degree to which this took the consensus by surprise was quite shocking. Well, does that notion of the benefits of AI broadening out beyond big tech affect at all how you're thinking about Magnificent Seven is the latest new buzzword for the top seven weights in the S&P, yeah. your, your big mega cap? Alphabets and NVIDIAs. You, your team had Magma? Was we it magma? did. We had a few. We've tried <laughs> Fab Five for the Big Five. We have done the Magnificent Seven as well. I've, I've gotten into this game and none of them have really taken off. So We need to get one that sticks. I know. I need to find one that sticks. The problem is also the market cap concentration shifts are pretty significant. So sometimes Tesla's in there. Sometimes Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway is yeah. in there. How do you, yeah. Berkshire Hathaway with a bunch of tech companies? How do I describe this? How are you thinking of that concentration? I've heard sort of different arguments from different people that a lot of people think, well, the rest of the market's bound to catch up eventually. But it's hard to see a a correction in mega cap tech without Mm -hmm. a really nasty 
S&P 500. Have you done any work thinking about this type of top heavy rally and, and, mm-hmm. and what we should think will come next? Yeah, we actually dedicated a, a note to it a couple of weeks ago. Really looked at concentration risk and what it may or may not mean. We are historically concentrated in terms of gains, but what it actually means going forward is gains might slow. Let me just start there. Yeah. But there are two experiences in our past in which we have had extraordinary concentration in similar fashion to the concentration that we have today, 2000 and 2020. And the outcome of both of those was totally different. In 2000, the concentrated gains ended in tears, right? All of the biggest names really crashed. In 2020, the rest of the market caught up. And the difference there was earnings trends. In 2000, earnings for the rest of the market just kept crashing along with the tech stocks. Tech earnings fell in 2020, the rest of the market started experiencing an earnings recovery. So I believe that earnings are going to make the difference. Now, when I look at the earnings outlook for tech and the rest of the sectors, I actually see some justification for this concentration risk in earnings as well, because the biggest stocks in the index had a magnificent earnings recession in 2022. We're talking 2025, some, in some cases, 30% declines in EPS. They have started to show some signs of stabilization and recovery earlier than the rest of the market, which has enabled this rotation. So right now they have an earnings edge on the rest of the market, if you will. They're the only stocks that, you know, people feel confident that their earnings recovery is already emerging, that they have a longer term outlook for earnings growth that is emerging. The rest of the market will have to prove the case that they too can participate in this But unless they start failing on that earnings recovery, there's no reason to fade it. And I I think that's important to consider. Maybe they'll start failing on the earnings recovery, and that would be a very good reason to fade that rally. I'm working on the presumption that the rest of the market will broaden out and start to catch up to tech in terms of earnings, mostly because of the inflation dynamic that we talked about, the pig and the python at the very beginning. But it's important. The other thing I'll say about concentration risk that I think nobody talks about is 2023's gains, first, are not historically unprecedented. They're too short to be historically unprecedented. We had a longer period of concentrated gains in both 2000 as well as 2020. But secondly, they do come off of unprecedented historic losses in 2022. That's the one thing that makes this story very different than 2020 or 2000. Tech had a horrible year, 2022. This space underperformed the market for 12 straight months last year. And I think that's really important for setting the background for why they're outperforming now. (laughs) Very different characteristic than has existed in past experiences. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I want to ask you about one other hot topic, which is cash, which oh. basically became its own asset class last year because so many people were putting, were going into cash. I think in June, money market funds saw a record high level. There's all these different ways to measure people favoring cash over the last year or so. But if we're thinking about 5% yields on cash, how does that compare now seeing a 14% rise in the S&P 500, mm -hmm. a 37% rise in the NASDAQ 100? And what is the possibility of some of that cash actually starting to move into the equities market? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And this is one area where I have had a minor amount of success in creating a shortcut description. I call this Terra instead of Tina. We all remember <laughs> Tina. There, yeah. are, there is no alternative. And Terra is there are reasonable alternatives. And some people are adopting this one. So we'll go with that. Let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Let's make fetch Terra, happen. Terra has definitely changed the, the game for equities. And it's not just cash, but it's also bond yields are much, much higher. So the relative value of equities in a multi-asset portfolio is quite different than it was for much of the, the last cycle. The way that I think about this, the equity risk premium in comparison to bonds is probably the most relevant. I think cash is and is not competitive with equities. I think people save in cash with a different outlook than they save in equities, first of all. I think most people think of equities as a long-term asset for savings, whereas putting money in a money market fund still makes it quite accessible to you to you for you to utilize. So it's a, kind of a different savings mechanism, but nonetheless... Yields across the board are higher, and that's the story, which makes the equity risk premium much lower than it used to be, and equities much less attractive relative to bonds than they have been, at least for most of the last cycle. From 2009 to 2019, most of that period of time, equities were in the fourth quintile of history in terms of the equity risk premium relative to bonds. That meant you were really getting pushed into equities as an asset class. Your expected returns in that kind of climate for equities are 11% annualized. It's fantastic. It was just one of the best periods of time ever to be an equity investor, justified by very, very low relative yields. You were just forced in. Now, equities risk premium is closer to the third quintile of history, which implies you sh your return expectations for equities are much more limited. Your average return per year in that environment, you on average would anticipate closer to 6% annualized returns to equities. And it really is just a function of math. 
you know, when you're thinking about allocating assets, you can consider now yield-oriented investments as a long-term investor. You can uh, yield actually contributes to your portfolio, and equities have very little yield. Even if you look at the dividend yield relative to the 10-year treasury, it's just not particularly fun. It's 2% on the S&P 500. You're just not going to get a lot. So add that to the earnings yield, and that's your your all-out yield. You could get really stretchy and add buyback yield to it, too. And it's still, equities are not that attractive relative to bonds anymore. Gina, you do all these great models, this great quantitative work. I want to take you out of that comfort zone a little bit and talk about the things that really, I think, cause a sharp correction in equities is when there's something unforeseen, something no Uh one predicted or very few predicted. And I go back to the, the notion of the Fed. We have seen this aggressive tightening from the Fed. We did see the issues with Silicon Valley Bank and a few other First Republic, that duration risk problem they all had. I just wonder the way you look at the universe, is there a way to sort of model a kind of a black swan thing or, or something from the Fed tightening that's yet to come? I think even Jerome Powell this week said there's a lot of tightening that still has to work its way through the economy and the financial system. Is is that work you can do? I mean, is there another shoe to drop from Mm -hmm. this aggressive rate hike campaign? Is there any way to predict that or at least prepare for it in sort of your the way you look at the world? I don't think there's a way to model it. I think there's a way to think it through. And the way to think it through is identify the sectors or the space in the economy that benefit most from interest rates at zero percent and acknowledge that there probably are segments of that group or industry or investment or whatever it might be that are built upon a foundation of interest rates remaining low forever. And therefore, when interest rates go higher, we'll experience some degree of distress and default. And so it's not a modeled approach. It's just more logical. (laughs) Yeah. The question you have to ask yourself as an investor is when interest rates were for a very short period of time at 0% in 2020 and 2021, where did that money go? Where was the most borrowing? How did that manifest itself? And did that borrowing result in excess supply of something that is going to be subject to a shortfall of demand? Like, did we plan too much for these low interest rates to persist into perpetuity? This cycle is particularly difficult on this. I think that the most frequently presented sort of areas of risk are the least likely to be the candidates to create the downdraft. And I say that because everyone, I think, is looking at things like office and commercial real estate. They're looking at residential real estate. They're looking at the perpetuators of the last crisis because that's the easy spot. And they're thinking, okay, I lived through the great financial crisis and therefore I know what happens when interest rates go higher and squeeze off growth. And therefore I know that it's going to be residential and commercial real estate that are the areas of most risk. I think because we went through the great financial crisis, those are the areas of most likely not the areas of greatest risk in the economy. Instead, it's somewhere else that low interest rates were fueling excess borrowing, fueling excess investment that was unsustainable. And if there's one area where I think that was the case, it probably is private credit, private equity. Mm. And I don't know how this ultimately works its way through the financial markets, how it ultimately works its way through the econo- the economy, 
because I just don't know if those losses will forever be paper losses or will real be real losses. I think some yeah. of them will be. Extended I think certainly there. Yeah, exactly. I just don't. I don't know how this is going to work itself out. But there was not a ton of housing activity when rates were zero percent. So why would we point our our finger there? There wasn't. We weren't building offices like crazy in 2020. We have a shortage of demand of offices for sure, and probably some excess supply that will will ultimately go into distress and default. But this is not a phenomenon like 2007, 2008. So that's the way that I think about it. Long story short, um, find those areas of excess because those are the areas that are most at risk. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, so great to have you on the show. We can't let you go just yet, though. We do have the tradition on the show to discuss the craziest things we've seen in markets. Valdana, what do you have? Okay, this is a Bloomberg story. It's about an apartment that's listed for sale in New York City. It's listed for sale for $4 million, which mm-hmm. apparently is a bargain, because it comes with a huge catch. There's somebody already living in the apartment, has been living there for decades, and I don't think has plans to leave. And so this tenant pays $2,346 a month and can continue renewing their lease, even if you know the apartment gets new ownership. It's a 5,800-square-foot apartment oh my in gosh. Manhattan. It's rent-stabilized, and... Um, until the tenant leaves, if you own the apartment, you're actually operating at a huge loss because just the taxes alone, oh, yeah. the monthly taxes are $5,500. And there's common charges of $2,800, which is more than the tenant pays to live there. That is wild. But you're apparently, so like in that same building, another apartment went for almost $11 million, Another one went for $9.475 million in February. So... You'd be, uh, you'd be getting a bargain. Wow. That, well, if, yeah, you, you got to eat those that loss for however many years, but that is pretty fascinating. All right. That's a good one, Vildana. I'll give you that. Mine is has to do with the IPO market, which uh, Gina, as you know, has not exactly been the hottest market this year. This was not an IPO of a company. It was an IPO of a painting. It's a story... Mm courtesy of Quartz. And I think they've done this in crypto, fractional ownership of paintings, but this is more of a regular traditional approach to it. It's Francis Bacon's masterpiece, Three Studies for a Portrait of George Dyer, finished in 1963. Going to IPO, I think in a few weeks at a specialty exchange that was just created in Liechtenstein of all places. Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein. $100 a share is the offering price. I'm not going to tell you how many shares are being offered, though, because it's time to play The Price is Precise, your favorite game show. What do you think the total value of Francis Bacon's masterpiece, Three Studies of a Portrait of George Dyer, the first ever painting to be IPO'd? And the way this will work is... You'll, you'll buy your share in the painting, but then it's going to go be hung in a museum somewhere. They don't, they don't know which museum yet. And basically what you're hoping for is a takeover, a hostile takeover of it at a higher level than the market cap. And as they, they always say, art has a pretty reliable, fine art has a pretty reliable return profile, if you believe all these art hucksters, I don't know. But name that price. What's, what do you think the total market cap is? 
of three studies for a portrait of George Dyer. I'll tell you this. It's not going to make it into the Magnificent, Magnificent Seven as far as market cap. That's the only hint I'll give you. Okay. That's not a very good hint because that would <laughs> <laughs> put you know, it in not, the billions, right? <laughs> it's not going to be a trillion dollar Trillions. Thing. Okay. So you, you don't even get to own this painting. You can't take it home. No, you can go visit it in the museum. I but see. you own a share of it so that if it, the hope, I guess, is that some private collector says, wait a minute, this thing's a bargain. I'm going to go. But you can share if there's a frenzy for the shares in this painting, they'll trade like a stock. So I see the value will go up and down. You could you could unload your shares at a profit, presumably. And I got to say, I bet you I bet you these shares do pretty well just for the novelty of it. It'd be kind of cool to own 10 shares in a, a masterpiece. I'm going to go with 28 million. 28 million. Hmm. All right, Gina, how about you? I have no idea how to value art. I'll say 100 million. 100 wow. million. Actually, 55 million. Oh, there oh, we come go. On. I thought I was so pain. close. I really thought I was so close. That's pretty good. <laughs> Wait, but I still win because uh, Gina went over. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, Gina. Sorry. That's okay. Stick, I, stick I have no idea stocks. what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. It's all right. I'm fully willing to admit it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is all the time we have. Unless, Gina, you have a crazy thing you want to share? I don't know. I do not. I, I don't have a really crazy thing. The only thing that I think is really crazy right now is, that's actually an investable theme is the heat. I'm blown away by the fact that we are going to face terrible air quality conditions again in the Northeast as a result of these wildfires that we've got. Yeah. People actually dying in Texas of yeah. overheating. And it's only June. So I think this I was, summer is going to be interesting. I was wondering if at, at some point the smoke starts to become macro-influential, if it starts having an impact yep. on something. I don't know whether it be crops or travel. I don't know. Do you think that's there's a potential for that? Well, I think it's possible. Remember when the um, volcano erupted in Iceland and oh, yeah. <laughs> all of that volcanic ash in the air shut down European travel right. for a while. That's right. It's definitely possible because all of this terrible sediment in the air is can create really big problems. And remember, they did have to sh very short term on that terrible air quality day in New York. They did have to shut down the airports. Yeah. Um, yeah. JF for JFK, just a short period of time. But it's so it's certainly possible. Yeah. Um, or even that the health effects, you know, if there's an uptick yeah. in asthma, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, that's something to keep an eye on for sure. I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't, you know, started influencing some prices somewhere on something. I'm sure it has. Yeah. I just haven't noticed. I think it, it has. I think it will continue to influence for sure. Or even of people getting getting lunch, being too afraid to step outside to buy yeah. lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good crazy thing off the top of your head, Gina. You're, oh, you're good thanks. at this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to read up next time for crazy things before I come. I thought you meant the Miami heat since you're from Florida. Oh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I wasn't talking about Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Not after that, uh, that last finals performance. They're, they're short, short that team. Anyway, Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Always such a treat to catch up with you and hear how you're thinking about things. I encourage all Terminal subscribers, go out and read that mid-year outlook. It's chock full of really a lot of interesting studies and, and outlook for, for the rest of the year. Thank you so much, Gina. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Follow me, at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong, and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.